Um, friends, it's wonderful to have you this morning. If you have already been to 8.30 worship service, then you know you had a real um, gift in the, in the proclamation offered by uh, Paul Roberts, who's our guest preacher today and also our guest teacher for uh, the class we've, uh, that our racial equity team has been offering on uh, the racial wealth gap. And we welcome uh, Paul here. Paul is the, um, uh, Reverend Roberts is the, uh, Paul. Paul. <laughs> Paul. <laughs> Reverend Paul Roberts is, is the president of the Johnson C. Smith Theological uh, Seminary and is, has been kind enough to come here. Uh, we, were, we were joking last night that um, we, we can't exactly remember when it was that we met, but uh, it's been some time. So um, it, was a, it was a gift to reach out to an old friend and invite him to come be with you and make new friends in, uh, with, with you all at, at UPC here. So um, we're gonna have, being that we're in the sanctuary, obviously there may be worshipers um, coming in towards the end of the class. I will just kind of call an audible on when, um, when we just need to close it down, but, uh, um, but I'll just go ahead and turn it over to Paul. Welcome, Paul. We're so good, delighted you. to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Really uh, such, a, such a gift and an honor to be with you this morning. I appreciate the work that you're doing. It's important. Um, it's important to me on a personal note because I'm a 61-year-old black man in America uh, with a story and a history and a family history that uh, has formed and shaped me and has provided a lens through which I regard various aspects of our lives together in these United States. And it's also important because I think every effort that we make as people of faith to wrap our brains around issues, difficult issues, is an improvement in the fabric of our society. And uh, so I'm, I'm glad you are studying and doing the work that you are doing together. I, uh, I find it challenging to come into a group um, absent of the conversations that you've had. And um, I ordinarily would present to you a series of slides. Uh, I have goo gobs of them. I'm actually, uh, full disclosure, I'm pretty tired of them. It's time for a refresh. And because of the great, great, great time I had with some of you last night at, at, uh, at uh, Meg and Jared's house, I just feel like it's more important, maybe not, but more important to uh, have a conversation with you kind of take uh, uh, stock of where you are, what's important to you, see if you have any particular questions for me as I share my journey with you, and uh, we meet somewhere in the middle. Hope that's all right. I enter the conversation about reparations with a history. My parents were part of the 
1940s migration of black people from the South to the North. My mother from Camden, South Carolina, and my dad from Bradenton, Florida. Uh, they um, made their way, unbeknownst to each other, obviously, they made their way to um, various parts of the Northeast and eventually settled in Connecticut. Uh, they met, my mother was working as a domestic in uh, Greenwich, and my dad as a factory worker in Stamford. They met, they married, they had one kid. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> it's kind of funny to me. Um, uh, both of them had, uh, each of them had uh, seven sisters and brothers. So I hail from a large family, and then my nuclear family was like tiny. Uh, they had aspirations. They didn't want to uh, be service workers. They had, they had, they had other aspirations. Uh, eventually, they decided that the the uh, one way that they would achieve their financial goals is to was to open a business, and. Uh, they decided, uh, since my mother was a domestic and excellent cook, uh, my dad came from a family of excellent cooks and was a very good cook himself, they decided to open a barbecue restaurant. And they sought a loan in Stamford, got turned down. They sought another, got turned down, got, uh, sought another, got turned down. And eventually, they found an institution that would lend them money to open their business. But the loan was a conditional loan. They would only receive the loan if they opened their business, if they were able to find a space and open their business in a very depressed part of town with strict and small geographical limitations. But it was their dream. So they went for the loan. Because it was in a depressed part of town, it was a very high interest loan. They went for it. They opened their business. Um, they worked hard. And at that time, I remember running around that shop. We called it the shop. Uh, it was Robert's Barbecue Shop. And we would just call it the shop. And I remember running around the shop. And um, the shop was located on West Main Street, which at that time in Stanford, Connecticut, was the heart of the ghetto. And all kinds of stuff happened on West Main Street that we dare not speak about in this lovely sanctuary. Well, my parents worked hard. I, I, 
I watched them. I watched my dad get up in the morning, go early. Uh, my mother, uh, when I was not in school, my mother would get me ready, and then uh, my dad would drive to the shop, and my mother and I would walk to the bus stop hours later and join my father in the shop, and they worked there together. And late at night, they would close up the shop, and sometimes, because, you know, when you're cooking barbecue all day, you don't want to eat it, so we would go get pizza for dinner <laughs> and um, go home, and they would count the um, receipts of the day and do their paperwork and prepare themselves for the next round on the next day. They did that for five years. And that neighborhood could not sustain my, my parents' business. So they closed up the shop. They had discussions with one another that I was not privy to at that young, my young age at that time, but which were later recounted to me, in which they felt very disillusioned by the promise, quote-unquote, of a better life in the Northeast. And they talked with one another about where they stood and how they would gauge where they were in the culture of Stamford, Connecticut, where you're told one thing, but there is a whole entire way of being that belies what you are told. And my parents felt like, at least in the South, they knew where, where they stood. And they would rather have the clarity of knowing parameters than being in an environment where things were murky and the only thing that was clear was that the culture didn't honor their best interests. So when I was seven, eight years old, we uh, packed up our Plymouth Fury and drove from Connecticut to Manatee County to set up a new life. And I was happy because I, I have all these cousins and grandma and everything in, in Bradenton. And I love the weather and I love palm trees and I love the Gulf of Mexico and just all of that. Uh, it was great. It was great growing up there. My parents reestablished themselves. Uh, they did not pursue their dream of entrepreneurship anymore. Um, my dad became a um, manager of a, uh, a housing program, a federally funded housing program in the 1970s. And my mother became a teacher's aide. And they carved out a living for themselves supported their son, uh, eventually bought a small two-bedroom, one-bathroom home, and uh, that's where I grew up through high school. 
And in the midst of all of that, my parents repaid that high-interest loan to the lender in Stamford, Connecticut, and adhere to the best possible uh, acts of financial stewardship that they could, but in all honesty, their ends did not always meet. My dad died in 1998. He was born in 1926, died in 1998 of lymphoma. My mother, after my dad died, uh, came to live with my family in me, in me in uh, Atlanta. She lived with us for 17 years. She died in 2016 at the age of 91 of chronic lymphocytic leukemia. and the financial legacy they had hoped to leave their son was non-existent. I have not always, that's not my phone, I have not always been a fan of reparations conversations because I, one, don't have confidence, enough confidence in our country to think that it would actually materialize. And two, I couldn't figure out for myself how something like that, as massive as that, would actually work. And three, um, I did all right. My folks did all right. They didn't complain. They did all right. And then uh, fast forward some, some years. As my three children, 20, who are now 27, 22, and 20, were really starting to uh, approach the threshold or were at the threshold of adulthood. My, my youngest child, whose name is Jalen, who is a soccer player, wanting to maintain his fitness for the upcoming soccer season, went running in our neighborhood in Atlanta. He decided to go running in our, in our Atlanta neighborhood two days after a boy in Brunswick, Georgia, also went running in his neighborhood. That boy's name was Ahmad Arbery. Ahmad Arbery went running, saw um, a house being built or something was curious, took a look. I studied architecture in college. I do that all the time. I see a for sale sign. I'm driving. I'm not, I'm not in the market to buy a house. But I see a for sale sign. I'm curious. I'm peeking in. I'm going up. I'm taking a 
history. You know, it happens. Ahmaud Arbery didn't get home. So two days after that boy was killed in the streets of Brunswick, Georgia, my son, who's also curious, ran in our Atlanta neighborhood. And my wife and I almost forbade him. But he ran. We did not do as our hearts were telling. And he ran. And thanks be to God, an hour later, he returned home safe and sound. But the experience of that, my friends, was so profound that I began to shift my thinking about this whole notion of repair and what's broken and how awful it is to be a person, to be a citizen, to be a resident, for, to live in your home, your home, your home streets, your home town, your home country, and be in jeopardy. Now, the violence can happen. Violence happens all the time, and there are random acts of violence, and it's always awful. But what I'm getting at are these systemic processes. And as I drill down in my own being about systemic processes, I then began to shift my thinking from not really interested in any conversation about reparations to one of uh, reparations as an act of repair. And then that moved me to think more deeply about what is repair, what does that look like, what can it look like, what, 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 what do people of faith do about it? And then that moved me to think theologically about the biblical mandate to enact repair, to not be content with systems of, that, are, that, that are broken, to refuse to abide with systems that are um, uh, unfair, unjust, not equitable. Hey, Tristan. <laughs> Sorry. So there's that. That's my point of entry. In my work at Johnson C. Smith Theological Seminary, um, so, so, so here's, here's, here's what I'm supposed to say as a good Presbyterian. Um, in my work at Johnson C. Smith Theological Seminary, one of the 12 seminaries of the Presbyterian Church USA, uh, worthy, all worthy of your financial support, please give to the Theological Education Fund of the Presbyterian Church USA. Okay, I did my duty. Somebody please report to the denomination I did my duty. 
we have decided, uh, my team and I, staff and I, have decided that we cannot abide with theological education as it is conventionally practiced. And what I mean by that is the uh, cornerstone of seminary education is this country, in this country is a degree. As you know, that degree is the Master of Divinity degree. For um, most of its nearly 160 years of service to the church, Johnson C. Smith Theological Seminary has offered that degree. Well, it's, it, 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 it started as a Bachelor of Divinity, which was common. There was not always a Master of Divinity degree, but per the professionalization of ministry and church and all of that, uh, Master of Divinity came into being, and we, alongside our sister institutions, offered it. Uh, but amid uh, significant shifts in church life, church demographics, and theological education, in 2014, we decided that we were not going to be a degree-granting institution anymore. And instead, we were going to um, build programs that support people of faith, all walks of life, in their justice work. It's a radical shift, a radical shift. We did a lot of homework, and we actually took a lot of abuse for um, our non-traditional, non-conformist um, attitudes. But it was the right thing. And in the aftermath of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, we decided that we needed to really understand where people of faith stood in this conversation about reparations. So we applied for some funding. We got some funding. We set up conversations of faith, uh, people of faith, clergy, community organizers, activists in key cities around the country, six of them. We gathered about, all total, about um, 200 people in conversation around tables in which we asked them questions about reparations, their own points of entry in this conversation, how they felt about it, did they think it was a good idea, not a good idea, uh, where did it emanate from, how did it connect to faith, what are the biblical mandates, all these things. And you know what we found out? These reparations conversations are all over the map. We've got people doing great reparations work in pockets around this country, big cities around this country that do not know other people who are doing reparations work. It's very disconnected, um, siloed in some places, and people engage reparations work for all different kinds of reasons. And very few of those reasons have anything to do with theology. We spent one year doing that. And at the conclusion of that year, we generated a report for our funders in which we reported what I have just shared to, with you. And we decided 
that one way Johnson C. Smith Seminary can contribute to the topic that you are studying is to help establish a firm theological grounding by which people of faith can have authentic conversations and deepen their understanding, not about the technical aspects of reparations, but about the, the, the why. And that's one of the things I want to know from you today and hope that you will uh, just kick it with me for whatever time we have left. You have taken on a study of an important text. There are many important texts on this topic. You have taken on a study And I'm curious, and if, 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 it's, if it's all right, I really want to be super straightforward with you. Um, I, don't, um, I don't put myself in circumstances like these very often anymore. Because a lot of times, book studies are academic exercises. Sorry, I just, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a kinetic type. Uh, sorry. Um, this is not academic to me. And it's extremely frustrating and extremely disappointing to go um, um, uh, in all goodwill and sit with people of, of goodwill and have a fine intellectual conversation. Only to return home to life as usual with no significant change. That is frustrating and disappointing and heartbreaking. This is not academic to me. I pray it's not for you. Uh, let's see if we can pull together some threads from, from our time together this morning. I have voiced to you already my frustrations around conversations of this nature, but not with you. I don't have frustrations with you. I have gratitude to you for engaging this significantly. I want to make that clear. One of your themes is about ripple. So this five weeks has a ripple effect. Please do not take that for granted. Do not take that lightly. What you are doing has influence in the overall culture of your congregation and perhaps throughout Chapel Hill. Build on that. Build on that by 
keeping these conversations alive and introducing the conversations to others that you think may be sympathetic or interest and build some momentum and community around that. It would be tragic for five weeks to end today and then we move to the next book. That's not the point. That cannot be the point. The point has to be we build community. Maybe even we begin to build a movement just by riding the ripple. That's one of your threads. Two, truth, information. Misinformation in our country is just out of control. And so people of faith, people of goodwill, who can uh, push themselves and utilize their resources to ensure that we tell the truth, that our facts are accurate, and that we actually speak factually in the face of uh, others who have no idea about the facts. And that's hard. It means sometimes that we're going to be confrontational, very hard for people of faith. And but that's what the prophets did. That's what Jesus did. So truth-telling, fact-finding, we must be all about it. That's one of your themes. And I, I, I'm, 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 I'm hoping that you will um, look at a few passages. For instance, um, in the book of Leviticus, we, we, we learn about Jubilee. I wonder if you would study, if you haven't already, this principle of jubilee. And see if you can find a connecting point between that ancient concept and where we are in the world today and what you're aspiring to in the world today. I read from Isaiah 58. It's one of my favorite chapters in the entire canon. I encourage you to take some time Phrase by phrase with Isaiah 58. And if you like it, uh, go on to Isaiah 61. Do the same thing. And find the justice tie-ins there, the, the repertory tie-ins. I also read, I read today from the Beatitudes and uh, four, the four that I read, all have something to do with the nature of being a just community in the world. You might also look at Amos, fifth chapter of Amos. But there are a lot of passages there that we don't unpack. And Micah, 
Thank you. And Micah, what is required of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God? Can I have just one more, 30, just 30 seconds more? I mean, really. And, and, and I, you know, I move around, and I just feel inclined to be on my knees because this is holy. It's nothing less than holy, and it's complicated and super hard, and it's what we're supposed to do. Who else is going to do it? Um, thank you. Blessings to you and your work.